Your Royal Highnesses, Your Excellencies, distinguished guests, ladies and gentlemen, thank you for uh, finding time in your busy diaries to join us today. It's a fantastic group of people I see in front of me. Six years ago, with the support of uh, then Prince Charles, His Majesty Sultan Qaboos, King Salman in Riyadh and Sheikh Joan bin Hamad in Doha, uh, I was very lucky with two Omani companions to retrace the first ever crossing of the largest sand desert on earth. Our journey took us along the red line from Salala in southern Oman north to Doha. 49 days on foot and by camel across the most extraordinary landscape in the world, the empty quarter, the Rubal Kali. Um, no footprints, no rubbish, no light pollution, sleeping on the sand every night, shivering mornings, sweltering days, absolute heaven. Mark Evans, uh, I, <laughs> I, 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 well, we're sitting here at the Royal Geographical Society. I walked into this building 44 years ago uh, as a 17-year-old kid, first trip ever to London, having not really um, fitted in at school, wanted to be outdoors all the time, didn't like the confines of a classroom, so my detention hours outnumbered my house points quite significantly. But at the age of 17, I was given the opportunity to come to London uh, to, for an interview to go on a, an expedition with a charity that was set up by one of the survivors of Scott's South Pole uh, expedition, a chap called Murray Levick. And um, was asked a series of questions by lots of people with woolly jumpers and puffing pipes, and uh, none of which I could answer. And clearly an absolute disaster. Two weeks later, an envelope arrived and the letter said, you know, clearly you have nothing to contribute to the success of this six-week expedition to the Arctic. However, we see someone who can benefit enormously. And um, so they offered me a place and, and that six-week expedition in 1979, boy, did I grow up really quickly. Fantastic experience. Um, we reached Doha and reflecting on that journey, I was looking through my notes and I'd taken this photograph of a a telegram that I discovered in a box in Cambridge. And this telegram was written uh, very painfully actually because Philby had his heart set on being the first person to cross the biggest sand desert on earth. And on receiving the news that Bertram Thomas had actually beaten him to it, reputedly he locked himself in a room for a week muttering obscenities and refused to come out. But he did come out and he went on to do the most extraordinary things. The idea for the Heart of Arabia expedition, uh, it, it, it came from my last expedition really. It's, I, I love expeditions, I love being out there, I love, the, I love the, the people that you meet when you're researching expeditions, I love the... When I reflect about my expeditions, it, there's, there's, there's always a historical connection. Um, you know, we followed Nansen across Greenland, we looked for Franklin in the Northwest Passage. It's, I find this, I have this fascination with the people who went before, because whilst the empty quarter is still the empty quarter and it's still incredibly tough, the conditions under which you travel are so different. And, and you always swear at the end of an expedition when you've got dreadful blisters, you've lost five or 10 kilos of weight, that you'll never do it again. And then probably a week later, you're meeting someone in the pub, you've got the maps out and uh, you're just plotting the next one. And 
So my wife had, had a real interest in the Cambridge spiring and, and reading about Kim Philby. And, and it was, there was always a couple of lines that made reference to dad. And uh, I thought, gosh, so I, went, I, I started highlighting all these comments about this incredible character. And then I bought his book, The Heart of Arabia and learnt more about the significant journey for which he was awarded the Founders Medal by King George here in London. And um, what a character. What a character. There's only really ever been one book written about him by Elizabeth Munro, I think, Philby of Arabia, a really good read. Uh, but other than that, you have to read through the countless number of books written about Kim Philby. But in, in those books, you will find reference to father, St. John Philby. And it's quite interesting when you lift some of those references out because it does paint a bit of a picture as to the kind of character that, that, that he was. Well, my memories are pretty vivid. They were few and far between the meetings with him. Um, but I was always fascinated when I used to go to my grandmother's flat and I'd see his study and everything and, and then occasionally meet him there. I'm Mike Engelback. I'm the son of Helena Philby. Who, um, who became Helena Engelback, who was the youngest daughter. And it's, it's, it's great uh, to have the time to read far more about my grandfather. This very distinguished man, that was, I remember above all of feeling you know, this dignity with which he deported himself, if you like. I mean, he came to my school sports day uh, and encouraged me at cricket. Um, he took me to the Oval to watch a test match Truman and Statham opening the Boeing. Wow, halcyon days, you know. We spent the whole day together at the test match. And the irony of that one is I remember saying to him, Grandpa, you, you must be a bit uncomfortable. I'll get you one of these cushions because you had to hire the cushions to sit on. And he said, no, I'm absolutely fine. I mean, he had been used in the older days to sitting cross-legged on the touchline in the days where you could approach on the, sorry, on the boundary and sitting cross-legged there, Arab style, you know. He was never happier, I think, than when the grandchildren were all round at table. We used to have supper all together early before the children all went to bed. Um, and he would take part in the, in the children's discussions and, and resolve disputes and things. And as a family man, he was, you know, terrific uh, with, with people he worked with and etc. I think some of them thought him the very devil. He had a pugnacious character, one has to say. And I've said this and admitted this to Mark. He loved to get into an argument. He loved to win. <laughs> um, he had a fiendish observance of the facts. He always said to my mother when she was young, "You know, where are your facts? Don't never say something that you, and you don't that you don't know is true. You know, don't tell me something if you can't back it up and you know it." Philby was a prolific writer. He was different to other explorers. People like Thomas and Thesiger came and went after a period of about four or five years, they moved on. Whereas Philby became a scholar of Arabia. He spent his entire life there from 1917, dying in Beirut in 1960. So he was an absolute scholar, explored the country from east to west, um, north to south. St. John Philby is a very controversial character uh, in the history of British-Saudi relationship. Uh, he was actually uh, kicked out of government service, which is when he became an explorer. I'm Sir William Petey. I'm the chair of the Saudi-British Society. If it hadn't been for um, him falling out with the British over the uh, uh, Jewish settlement in Palestine, 
Uh, he might never have become an explorer. He might have still been in, in government service. So that's where his great expeditions happen. So uh, he's a, obviously a Royal Geographical Society gold medalist, uh, having done two uh, amazing uh, journeys across, across Arabia. But if you imagine the world of exploration in 1917-18, um, the North Pole had been claimed by Peary and Cook, but they were both disputing each other's claims. Amundsen had beaten Scott to the South Pole. Everest had still not been ticked, but the Alpine Club were exploring ways to climb Everest. Um, Shackleton and his men had just arrived back in London um, six months before Philby started his journey. It was an incredible era. The defining journey in Philby's life was a journey he did in 1917. And he was sent down the coast from Basra to Bahrain, landed on a dhow, managed in two weeks to get from the east coast into up onto the plateau to Riyadh, where he met uh, Abdulaziz ibn Saud. And they became lifelong friends. Um, it was an expedition that shaped really a nation, and not many expeditions do that. Um, there were many explorers who went through Arabia, Thesiger, um, Thomas, being but two, but, but what defined Philby was he became a scholar of Arabia. He devoted his life to it. He converted to Islam. He became known as Abdullah Philby, um, which gave him access to the inner court and the discussions of Ibn Saud. Um, he, he used his position and the opportunity to explore that country, visiting places where most Europeans had never set foot. And his obsession with data, collection and field science and geography meant that when he came back to London, the first place he came was the Royal Geographical Society with his notes. And this building was full of cartographers at the time, just waiting for people like Philby to come. And then they would add detail to the very um, sort of empty maps of Central Arabia. So Philby devoted his life to Arabia. Um, he would drive home to London for a cricket match at Lord. Sometimes he was quintessentially British, um, totally at home in the desert totally controversial when it came to politics and, 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 and authority, um, really had no respect for, for anyone. Our own journey will be to try and use his, his copious notes to retrace his route. We will start on exactly the same day that he landed, November the 15th, but 105 years later. In the same place, uh, Alugair, the, the fishing port on the east coast that is now abandoned. When he arrived at this port on the east coast of Saudi in 1917, the first thing he did was, you know, we'd, most of us would probably find somewhere in the shade and have a good lie down, but no, he got his notebook out and drew a quick field sketch of, uh, of the location. So we have maps that we can use. Um, we have his writings that we can use to actually try and navigate and guide us. And, uh, and you know, what he refers to a hill, a hill in a flat landscape can be nothing higher than three or four meters. So we'll, when we're, you know, we're not slavishly following his route, but we're gonna try and follow it as, as, as close as we can. His latitude, longitude won't help us so much. It'll be his words that guide us. But incredible detail, the pacing, you know, every step was 30 inches. Uh, according to his book. So therefore, if I've done 5,000 steps, that adds up to a distance of this. And then he'd noticed that Mercury was rising in the east, and so he'd, he'd take a little sighting with his compass and talk about the, um, he'd look at his, calculate the time, and therefore calculate the, uh, the sort of altitude of, of Mercury to the east. And nothing evaded him. How did Philby 
maintain such meticulous records? Do you know, I'm not, I'm not sure I know the answer to that because I cannot comprehend how anyone can have the mental capacity to A, remember, because he didn't write as he walked, but otherwise you, you can't, it's just very difficult. And if you look at his diaries, they're almost written in copperplate writing, they're beautiful. So everything was committed to memory. Uh, or, or a f very hasty field book which stuck in his, his shirt pocket. But then his main diary was written every night. Um, and, and he had to retreat into the shadows to do that with a, with, a, with a sort of tilly lamp. So we'll start November the 15th. We'll end 15 days later. Uh, we will then reach Riyadh. We'll take a break there like Philby did. And then the second leg of our journey, which is much longer, going across lava fields, following old pilgrim trails, will take us early next year to Jeddah. On the, on the Red Sea. What we hope to do is to get cracking pretty quickly every morning. Um, sunrise will be at about six o'clock. Um, it'll be pretty cold, it'll be sub-zero, especially on the second leg. Uh, so we'll want to get, get walking, pretty, get out of our sleeping bags, get walking, um, warm up, and, and cover as much ground as we can before the sun rises and, and things get too hot. But, but at lunchtime every day, we just try and find shade, which is very difficult. But uh, if you can, rig something up with trekking poles and a little tarpaulin, find a bit of shade. And that's the opportunity we have to sit down and read his book. And, uh, and then, then the same at night. The team. I've been asked several times this morning what, what, what worries me most about the journey and I have to confess it's the state of the camels that worry me the most. We had four camels that were presented to us by the Royal Oman Cavalry on our last expedition. Camels today, like, uh, like many human beings, have, life is pretty soft and comfortable for camels these days. You don't have to wander the desert looking for meagre slim pickings of grass or a little bit of water. You can stay in your little corral uh, fodder is brought to you, water is brought to you, and the idea of walking 30 miles a day, day after day, with 30 kilos on your back is not of interest to most camels. So our own camels, uh, we, we, we are in touch with the Camel Club, which is a very prestigious club in Saudi Arabia, thanks to my friend Abdullah who assures me these are good camels. Um, they will be undergoing boot camp before we arrive, uh, just to toughen them up. I was also asked what would be, did I think, one of the highlights of the trip. And one of the highlights of the trip for me will be sharing an incredible experience with three uh, extraordinary people. And they're sitting here on the front row, right in front of me. My name is Anna Maria Pavalake, and I'm the photographer of the expedition. I'm completely in love with the night time because it's a very lunar um, environment. And it's kind of like you're more close to the sky. So for the night photography, it's amazing. What is amazing about the desert, I think you just have uh, the horizon line and you can see the sunsets setting on the horizontal and you would not have that because when you are in the mountains, the difference is that the sun disappears very quickly and after you have those beautiful colors um, that come afterwards. But in the desert, you can see that evolution, you know, how it emerges. Um, there is something magic and inspiring when the sun sets. So that's why for me, if I have to picture, it's, it's about kind of like a group of people sitting around the fire, 
um, sharing their stories or the way how they perceive the environment or how they experience the entire day. And there is something inspiring in that moment um, when we all can sit down and it's like everything settles. What do you think will be the biggest challenge? Apart, I was laughing with Mark, of scorpions. <laughs> Um, driving a car in the desert, <laughs> um, I think for me it will be trying to kind of like taking the images that I want to take for this expedition, you know, and really finding the time to immerse myself on the trace of Philby, you know, and, and feel how it was for him. I mean, it's amazing to see the photos he He's been done, he's done in the past um, and, uh, you know, looking today how the environment changed and how modern uh, the place it became, you know, in such a short time, actually. You know, I grew up in an ex-Soviet country and um, my dad worked in the Libyan desert and some of my relatives worked in Oman or Yemen. So I kind of had those exotic places kind of like or images coming towards me when I was very young. So it always stayed in the back of my mind to, to immerse, immerse myself and to have that experience, spending more time in the desert with the people and, you know, experiencing the way of living, the way how people live there and get a grasp of the history that we can still find through artifacts. And, uh, you know, you always find traces and history is still there. When I wrote to a very well-known photographer who's lectured many times in this building, Martin Hartley. Martin's done some incredible photography in the North Pole. I asked him to recommend someone who he felt could tell stories. And I got a very quick email and there was only one name on it and it's yours, Anna. So I'm delighted that Anna's going to be there. She's got a, a key role. Our friends at the Middle East Centre in Oxford have shared with us some of Philby's old images from 1917 and we're going to try and find the exact place where those photographs were taken and, 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 and look for, for similarities and differences. Alan Morrissey, Alan's here in the front row. Alan has lived in Riyadh for 25 years. He knows that country better than most people. I mean, Philby had a great influence on the creation and the, the making of what is modern Saudi Arabia. And the country has changed hugely and significantly. I mean, in the time I have been there, and particularly in the last four to five years, I've seen dramatic changes. But the essence of the people, the essence of the Saudi nationals, uh, the Bedouin, the people who call the desert their home, and in fact the city dwellers now who have ancestry to, in the desert, I've experienced that welcoming and that culture and that tradition, which is almost in their DNA. It really is. Uh, and to be putting a journey together like this and participating in a journey like this where we know we will be received well and to know that we will have hospitality beyond the, the level that we can accept at times because it will be just in abundance. Uh, all of that together is just making for an exciting prospect. This is a, a great expedition ahead of us. What's your role in the Heart of Arabia expedition? Logistics and organisation in that regard. So preparing for the logistical side of the ex actual expedition. We're talking about things like the, the vehicles, the route plotting and plotting. We're talking about food, water supplies, fuel supplies. 
any of the equipment, communications equipment, all of the logistics have to come together uh, for the team. They're depending on me, so <laughs> it needs to be in place at the right moment. Well, it will be the, the sense of travel, I think, because we are, it is a journey, we're reproducing a journey. Uh, it's got a start point and an end point, but it'll be the bit in the middle that'll be the most intriguing. And so um, I think once you're on the way, you have to take every event as it comes. The planning is complete, your equipment list is complete, you have to take care of any eventuality. So being able to cope with that, whatever the daily uh, travel throws at us, that's, that's really what's uh, going to be the challenge in its own sense. Philby and other travellers at the time, particularly in Arabia, they were walking into the unknown. You know, they, they hadn't got the tools that we have today, they couldn't open up Google Maps and things and, and, and see. So they, they were walking into what was a blank canvas. And uh, Philby himself is intriguingly detailed. I mean, he was a draftman, draftsman by profession, but actually his notes created the maps that are so accurate even by today's standards. So that's, that by itself is, is intriguing. So in traveling the desert, which I do many times, I don't always have this context to have a, a, an expedition like this where we overlay the historical dimension it's just intriguing. Very unassuming man, but don't, uh, don't, don't, uh, don't, don't let that fool you. He, he's an incredibly detailed man. He will be leading the vehicle elements, uh, the route finding, in charge of the logistics, and we're in very safe hands with, with Alan. And last of all, a chip off the old block. A, a Philby will be traveling with us, Reem Philby. The more research we did for the expedition, the more we discovered uh, Philby's family in Riyadh because he was presented with a wife by Ibn Saud. He had children by his Saudi wife. He obviously had children by his British wife as well. And the two sides of the family had never met, but, but obviously the more we progressed in planning the expedition, we discovered more about the Saudi, royal uh, Saudi Philby family and, uh, and discovered this amazing girl called Reem. It's, an, it's a wonderful honor to be a part of this team and uh, it's, it's very overwhelming. Uh, the fact that I would get to um, walk the same uh, path that he walked over a hundred years ago is uh, tr truly magnificent and I'm sure I'll get the opportunity to learn many stories about him and that's uh, a main part of why I'm very excited about joining this expedition. Time in the desert is always something I look forward to because that's where I'm very, very comfortable. I'm also very much looking forward to spending time with the team. Mark and, and uh, Alan and Anna are, are just wonderful and I think I will learn a lot from them and we'll create great memories together and uh, I'll benefit from the um, knowledge that they have. Uh, and at the same time, I, again, this specific route is a, a very special one for me. So I'm really looking forward to walking it, seeing how difficult or easy it was and, and uh, perhaps meeting the people who, the few people who we will come along uh, during the expedition. So yeah, lots to look forward to. So obviously I didn't meet my grandfather, but I uh, grew up in Saudi Arabia with a very unique last name. So whenever I introduce myself, there's always that question is, oh, so is it the Philby Philby? And I, I would say proudly, yes. I'd never met Reem. We, we had a chat over Zoom and, uh, and I said, look, Reem, it would be wonderful if you could be with us when we start, maybe spend the first night out with us under the stars um, and then perhaps come out and meet us as we approach um, Riyadh 14 days later. She said, but what about the days in between? I want to be with you there as well. I said, well, we, you know, we're going to be sleeping on the sand every night. No tents, no toilets, no showers. Great. It's, it's Reem's idea of heaven. 
she fits into the team, just that perfect jigsaw piece to, to complete the team, really. As the only member of the team from Saudi Arabia, what does it mean to you to take Mark and the team into your home, your home country? That's the key word. Saudi Arabia is my home and it will always feel like home. It's where I grew up, it's where I'm raising my kids, and uh, I, I kind of feel like I'm welcoming the team to my home. Um, yes, Mark and Alan probably know the route better, but it still has that overwhelming feeling of welcome to my home, welcome to my land, and, and let me introduce you to our people here, and it's, it's a very special feeling. We're carrying a flag with us on our journey, which was a flag that was carried to the moon on Apollo 11. And it's the flag of the Explorers Club New York. So we've been granted permission to carry this flag with us. And we would not have been granted that were our expedition purely about f fastest, furthest, hardest, most macho, all that nonsense. It's all about adding to our understanding. So we, we're, we're doing three um, science projects that I think Philby would ap approve of, um, very much in the vein of collecting primary data. And, and he was, a, he was a, a nothing more than a keen amateur, but what, a, what an amateur, what an observer of things around him. So we have four pairs of reasonably educated eyes in the team, uh, and we're gonna be focusing on three projects and using those eyes and ears and noses to really gather data to um, support some great scientists doing some great work. So if you imagine Saudi Arabia is 10 times the size of Britain with half of the population. So it's pretty much wilderness. So if you're a terrestrial ecologist out there, if you're an archeologist out there, you struggle to, scrap, to scratch the surface of what there is. So we can offer a transect, a line across the, uh, across the peninsula from east to west. So one of the projects we're doing is looking at lithic artifacts. So stone flint arrowheads and, and scrapers are lying in the sand, thousands of years old, from a time when Arabia, the climate was very different, when Arabia was like Mongolia today, green steppe, um, people living along the water courses that would have existed at the time, hunting with, uh, so you'd have had people who were skilled flint nappers who could rattle off a couple of arrowheads within half an hour. I wouldn't have, a, you know, give me a couple of rocks. I would be there weeks later still trying to make an arrowhead. Really skilled people. So um, we're supporting a chap in Griffith University in, in, in uh, Australia. Who, who heads up a project called Green Arabia. And, and, and everything we see lying in the sand, uh, we're not allowed to touch. We photograph, we GPS the location with a, a ruler by the side of it so they can get a size. And then we record the, the, the situation, the landscape around it. So we're gathering data for Mike and his team at Green Arabia. Uh, bats, second project is bats. Bats are super important in the Middle East because the most important agricultural crop is the date palm, of which there are many varieties, but the fruit bats in particular cross-pollinate these date palms, so they're very important. They have a pretty negative um, uh, um, reputation in society at the moment due to COVID, um, but they are super important animals. We are traveling in winter, there won't be many of them flying, but even better than that, they will be roosting. So we go into the old mud brick buildings and, and or looking down into the wells and we can photograph the roost sites and share these with a team at King Abdullah University Science and Technology. Uh, where there's a team of terrestrial ecologists. We'll have a bat locator uh, that we'll leave out every night and, uh, and that will capture any calls and frequencies and then the specialists 
can identify the, free, the, 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 the species by the frequency. And the last project is super important. It's connected to um, the Artemis um, NASA space probe that's due to be, I think they've had a couple of attempts recently to get off the ground that have failed. But if you look at the news stories in the papers, they're now talking about Mars before 2040. So how is a human being how are two human beings going to cope with extended isolation uh, going to Mars? Well, there's a lot of research being done into the psychology of human performance in extreme environments. And we, we were part of that on my last expedition um, five or six years ago in parallel with a group in Antarctica. But then it was all pen and paper. And the team behind this project have now gone digital. And uh, so we will be testing an app um, um, and uh, we'll be obviously feeding that back to the team here in the UK at Coventry University uh, to analyse uh, what it is we're inputting into this app every day. It'll be questioning us in, in terms of our, our own performance. What are the factors that are limiting that performance or enhancing that performance? What are, what are possible solutions to that? So very much trial and error. This is a prototype, um, but that's really very, very exciting. And, uh, and that for me is what science is all about. It's just moving one step at a time forward and, and, and adding to our knowledge of places that, that didn't previously exist. Reem and Anna and, uh, and Alan, they're going to be looking after relative science projects as well. So Reem's looking after the bat work, uh, the terrestrial ecology. Um, Alan's looking after the lithic stuff because he's already got an eye for it because he goes out to the desert a lot. He knows the likely places to find lithic stuff. Uh, Anna is looking after the social media side of things and that leaves me to look after the, um, the, the psychometric profile of the psychology. Um, Ranulf Fiennes, who's a great um, champion of this society and, and, and this building, wrote recently about academics writing about explorers. And he said that too many historians have written about Scott in a negative way. These are people that have never got cold fingers and cold toes. If you're going to write about fear, it helps if you've felt it. And it's the same when it comes to deserts. What appeals to me about being in the desert is you know it's pretty similar to what appeals to me about going to the arctic regions it's the, that 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 enormity of nothingness that that power of of utter silence and that feeling that you really are the only person on the on the planet and you know i get the same satisfaction that feeling of exploration in it with a not with a capital E, but with a small E of, of walking through dunes where there's not a footprint in sight. I get that same wonderful feeling when I'm looking at my ski, ski tips shuffling forward on pristine, glistening snow and not a human being in sight. You know, the, the similarities are enormous. The differences are obvious, but the similarities are enormous, actually. That, that feeling of, of, of almost being a pioneer, um, but also being amongst people who live on the edge of human tolerance. I find that really fascinating. And I spent a lot of time with Norwegian trappers, who've a lot of fascinating people who've given up normal life, if you like, in Oslo as bankers and marine biologists and, and live on their own in a log cabin miles from anywhere. And um, fascinating people, that frontier mentality. And, and you find that similar mindset amongst the Bedouin, um, which is why Thesiger um, loved them so much. And, uh, and Philby loved them so much. That, that, that warmth, um, that openness, that friendship, the fact that a door is never locked. Um, 
so, so I, I am just at, at home in the desert as I am in the Arctic. The man on the left will be known to, well known to all of you, T.E. Lawrence, Lawrence of Arabia. On the right, Lowell Thomas, the journalist. And uh, Lawrence, his book, The Seven Pillars of Wisdom, is poetry. If you've been to the desert, you will know what he's saying when he refers to the perfumed air of the desert and the subtle animal tracks on the sand every morning. As the morning's newspaper, it tells you the news of what's happened in the night around you. Which brings me to the last and, and what I think is, for me, the most important point of doing this journey, which is to inspire young people. Because I think technology is a wonderful thing, but we've all become disconnected from what's around us. And, and Philby was so observant, meticulously so, and yet we seem to now walk from here to South Kentube and not even notice anything. Earplugs, looking at phones. And you know, the, the, it's a very, really hard question to answer that one because there are so many multiple layers to it. But, you know, I keep coming back to young people and uh, even if we inspire one person to get out there and start asking questions about what and how and why, then we've moved society forward, I think, you know, in a very small way. But, I, I, you know, we will go way beyond that. I've, I've no doubt about it. But of, of all the things we're doing, you, you know, we know we're going to gather data that's of use to these three universities, Coventry, um, Jeddah and, 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 and Brisbane. Um, that's great. We're going to put a spotlight on an incredible man, an incredible geographer, but it's really that it's that it's that focus on what was around him, that journeying with purpose. And you know, we are engaging with some of the biggest youth development organisations here in the UK, who between them actually I total up today shape the lives and the thinking of 1.4 million young people every year. That's staggering. In this room, we have four of the most extraordinary youth development organisations in this country: uh, the Duke of Edinburgh Award, the International Award of the Duke of Duke of Edinburgh Award, we have British Exploring Society, and we have Natalie here from Outward Bound Trust. So my challenge and request to you four organisations in this room, plus geography teachers that I can see sitting here as well, plus geography ambassadors, there's several of you in the room. We have three young ambassadors for the Duke of Edinburgh Award, they're, they're here somewhere. We have the education team from the Royal Geographical Society. What I need you to do, please, is to use this journey as the opportunity to inspire young people to journey with purpose rather than just journeying for journey's sake. Uh, we were talking earlier about the destination of our journey. I haven't even thought about getting to the end. Why would I want to? We've worked so hard to enjoy this trip. I want to, I want to enjoy every day. Just before I hand over to our patron, uh, I think we'd like to say a few words at the end. I'd just like to say a few thank yous. Um, first of all, to um, you, Your Royal Highness, for, for generously accepting our, 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 our um, request for you to consider being the patron of this expedition because it's given the whole project a great lift. Um, if, you, if you don't know, um, Her Royal Highness is, is patron of the Royal Geographical Society and vice president of the Royal Scottish Geographical Society. Both organisations are represented here. Your Royal Highnesses, My Excellencies, ladies and gentlemen, 
Well, Mark, thank you for that introduction because you've solved one problem already. Um, it's partly why I'm here. And I've been delighted to be asked to be patron of this expedition. Philby, patently, his, um, he must have been a trial to his teachers, wasn't he? I mean, any form of subject would have been a trial. But to have that kind of attitude and the belief that you only really achieve something if you made really good records uh, of what you did, and to use that, that skill of observation to leave what we now um, simply call data, which is collected normally automatically and robotically, and we just search it later. One of the reasons I'm so pleased to be part of this is that it underlines the importance of observation, physical observation, the not the bit about the narrow view uh, of what is on the end of your phone or in your iPad. This is about real observation, about taking in things, about understanding how you fit and all the things that went with it. How did people live in the environment that he crossed? What was different about it? And actually, that's perhaps even more important in modern terms, is to understand how much has changed, what, what existed before. The scope for finding more in this expedition is just enormous to add to that level of knowledge. And I think we all have something we can really look forward to, and possibly something that we will envy about those taking part in this expedition, uh, which allows them to be part of that learning exercise. Now, whatever you hope to achieve, and for each of you as individuals, I suspect that'll be something slightly different. I do hope it will inspire the younger generation to understand the importance of Yes, the technology that allows us to enjoy things more in the sense that we see more than we would have done before. But to also understand the importance of observation and that that is the key to being able to understand the planet where we live and the people we share it with. And that has much greater long-term value than almost anything else. Expedition in the future is just as relevant as it ever was in the past. Things may change. You, you, I do hope your camels are um, up to this, because I'm not sure your cars will be. But it, all of that is a learning experience that people want to relate to. But to those of you who are taking part, I, can, I wish you well, but I think you go with a lot of people's envy that you'll be doing something really exceptional and for all the right reasons. Thank you. This is El Bushara Cemetery in Beirut, the Muslim graveyard in Beirut. And uh, Foreign Office advice was not to go there, um, so I, I didn't intend to linger long. Um, but this is where Philby was buried the day after he died. He died on September the 30th, 1960, and he was buried on October the 1st, 1960. The only clue I had was that he was buried under the shade of a wall. And so I spent a couple of hours wandering around the graveyard, and by the time, by the time I'd done two or three perambulations, the group behind me uh, was growing larger and larger. And the imam came out and offered me tea, and we sat down, and he said, well, what are you doing? And I said, well, I'm actually looking for the grave of an Englishman. Um, because when he was buried here, his son scratched upon that grave, the greatest of Arabian explorers. 
And, uh, well, he said, I'm not sure I've seen that. And I've been here a long time. He said, tell me, when did he die? I said, 1960. And he said, well, you need to learn your history, young man, because uh, we've had several civil wars here since then. So the grave will be here, but it will be several layers down, very sadly. So a futile search, but one that I had to do. Um, when he did pass away, uh, the director of the Royal Geographical Society at the time was not Mr. Joe Smith, but was a man called Lawrence Cohen. And his words were that when St. John Philby died suddenly at the age of 75 in Beirut, on his way back to Arabia from London, the Royal Geographical Society lost one of its most distinguished explorers and a man of very remarkable character. During long and often solitary journeys, Philby was able to free himself from the political and moral controversies into which he so hotly plunged in more civilized surroundings. All attention was concentrated without thought of personal comfort or advantage on the scrupulously careful collection of scientific observations of all kinds. These formed the foundations of our knowledge of Arabia. So Philby, an extraordinary man, that journey of 1917, you could argue, was one of those few expeditions that really did shape a nation. His friendship with Ibn Saud really did shape a nation, and that trust between Britain and Saudi Arabia continues today. I think he would be delighted, honoured, flattered that someone, a young man, as how you view Mark, although Mark's not pushing 60, uh, had taken this interest and was going for his own reasons and under his own steam to undertake that trip. So there would be tremendous respect. If they were to meet beforehand, whether Mark would start to tire a bit of his non-stop descriptions of what he had to do and be careful what happens here and this is how you have to do that, don't try and do it any other way, Mark probably wants to do things his own way, so <laughs> I could imagine that, possibly. So I don't know how they'd get on if they met. Well, we'd probably have a blazing argument, which is what he seemed to do whenever he met anybody. But actually, what would Philby say if he were here now? So I've often asked myself that question, Dan, actually, what would Philby be doing today if he were around? And I think he would be exploring what matters. And I think he would be a real thorn in the side of people who hide or, or greenwash over the facts. Philby was very much facts, primary data. How do you know? I remember speaking to Michael, his grandson, who, who remembers going up to his grandfather's study and, 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 and very proudly sharing with him something he'd done or learnt or read and, and his grandfather saying, yes, but how do you know it's true? Where does, it, where does the information come from? And so I think he would approve of our primary data, our, our gathering of data in the field. I think he would think we're a bunch of Jessies, really, by using technology and, uh, and sleeping bags rather than shivering away every night. But actually, I think he would approve of what we're doing. Uh, I think he had a real affection for Arabia. Uh, and, and I hope, you know, what, what we are doing in terms of challenging people's misunderstandings of Arabia, I think he would, he, he would like that. Um, but you know what, I think he'd get bored of the conversation pretty quickly and I think he'd head off to Lord's to his cricket ground where he used to, used to endear himself with uh, puffing his pipe, doing the Times crossword and, uh, and, and watching the cricket. And uh, 
you know, a, a, a remarkable man. And I think it was Princess Alice, Countess of Athlone, who was the first member of the British royal family to ever visit Arabia. And she spotted Philby in a room straight away. And she said, gosh, you know, the, the politicians and the diplomats were so dreary. Thank God Philby was in the room because he was the only one with anything interesting to say. And, uh, you know, when Philby sailed south from Basra, five months before that, Shackleton and his men had returned from the endurance um, escapades. And why wouldn't you have loved to have been in a room with those two, Ernest Shackleton and, uh, and, and Sinjad Philby? They just don't make people like that anymore. Thank you.